Hello, hello. Welcome to Ami Tucker It Out. I am your host, Ami Tucker Ravel, and I am here with my producer, Nizar. As always. How's it going? It's going very well today. You know, I thought we'd get a little bit political today. Yeah, we don't often get a chance to get into some political talks and conversations. So yeah, this is a welcomed change for the episode. Yeah, and you know what? I found my old and dear friend, Parag Mehta. <laughs> your Don Ross partner. My Don Ross partner <laughs> back in the day when we were at UT. I'm not going to say the year. Um, okay. But yeah, we were Don Ross champions, as I like to call it. Champions. Um, and Parag is a communication specialist who has worked on making positive social impact for the past 17 years. Years. Nice. He also served as a public liaison on then-president-elect Obama's transition team and managed the Senate confirmation of Commerce Secretary Gary Locke. Very cool. I mean, this man has story after story, and man, what a career. Yeah, what a career. Yeah. And, and it's you know, going. <laughs> it, it's still going, yeah. And you know, the reason I, I want to talk to him, not just because he's a dear friend and his stories and career, but he actually is a DC insider. Oh, yeah. So he can tell us about how it was during the Obama years before uh-huh. that and how he feels about it now. Yeah. He also talks about South Asians, Indians in sure. and, and government and who he's excited about and about his upcoming marriage. Very cool. Yeah. So uh, excited to share this interview with you guys. Yeah. So stay tuned. We'll be back with our talk with Prag Mehta. Barag, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ami. It's good to be with you. It's been, a, it's been what, 20 years now? Almost. We're, uh, we are officially old. Um, and so <laughs> Barag and I met at the University of Texas at Austin, um, and we were both involved in ISA and in the Indian Student Association. I think it was the largest organization on campus, right, Barag? Yeah, and at the time, we were the largest university in the country, so take that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big deal. And I believe you were an officer for a couple of years. It was an officer. It was the beginning of my political career was being an officer of the ISA. Historian, by the way, historian. Histor- I remember this. You were, no, it, it was awesome. It was a, it was such a great organization. And then, of course, through that, we uh, decided to become uh, Ross partners and compete in this dance competition, the Dandia Ross competition. No, you didn't. Yeah, we did. And we were awesome. I, of course, was, was a boy, dressed as a boy, because, you know. <laughs> that that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um. And uh, yeah, these dance competitions at UT were intense. Like, I mean, it was awesome. I feel like that's mainly what I did versus studying. And then, of course, as it tends to happen, we lost touch after college. Um. And we recently caught up because uh, of the podcast. And so you were telling me you went to the Maxwell School. I'm not going to say the whole thing this time. Um. At Syracuse, how was that experience? It was great. It was, you know, it's a, it's something that I had never really considered because when I was at UT, I was pre-med, like all good Indian kids should be. And about three years into it, um, I went to go take my MCAT exam, which is the exam you take for medical school entrance. And I fell asleep in the middle of the exam, which is always a pretty bad sign because people prepare for this thing for like a year. Some people even like check into hotels the night before so they get a good night's rest. You know what I was doing the night before the MCAT? I was sitting with other ISA officers planning the Festival of India uh, conference with all the local university ISAs coming to campus. And I was like up until four in the morning doing that. So clearly my priorities were elsewhere and not on biology, physics, and chemistry. I love that. I I love that story because I feel like all of us were like, okay, yep, all of us have to eventually take the MCATs or go to be doctors. Like that's the path. And I love the fact that we actually (laughs) tried to take it and fell asleep. I I stopped at organic chemistry, by the way. I didn't get organic chemistry is usually like the make or break class. So, but I, 
I look, I went home from that exam and I knew I had done badly. And I sat down with my dad. And my dad, by the way, is a surgeon who had been on the admissions committee. And when I told him that A, I fell asleep, and then when he saw my scores, and he saw I did terribly, like in, you know, chemistry and biology, but I got like an almost perfect score in writing. His response to me was, Yeah, nobody cares about the writing score. But he was like, He's like, that's the highest writing score I've ever seen in 20 years of doing admissions. He's like, maybe this is a sign you should do something else. And I said, yeah, I've been thinking the same thing. And my mom, on the other hand, was not willing to give up on the dream. So she kept holding on to this hope that I would still go to medical school. And um, a few months later, there was like this big, you know, Indian uh, carnival thing going on. And they had this, this Jyotish, this palm reader who had come from India. And my mom dragged me to go see the palm reader. And the first thing he said, without even looking at my hand, he took a look at my face. He said, man, this kid is never going to be a doctor. And it just broke her heart. But it was the best moment for me because I was like, okay, I don't believe in this stuff, but at least this spiritual guru has just validated my life choices. And so that is the story of how I ended up at the Maxwell School Maxwell School at Syracuse. That's amazing. I just got to see an organic chemistry and then change my mind. So that's a, that's a, that's a great story. It was a simple, it was, it was a simple decision. Exactly. You like ripped the bandaid off instead of me who prolonged the suffering. I know. Well, you know, I also had the older brother that already became the doctor. So I was like, eh, right. I'm fine. Whatever. You know, you, you, we got to mix it up a little bit in the family. So you had mentioned to me also that, you know, during, during this time at UT, you were going through some personally hard times or struggles, I guess you can say. And I never knew about that because, you know, we were too busy dancing. So can you tell me more about that time? Yeah. So while I was in college, I started this process of confronting the reality that I'm gay. And by the time we got to our senior year, around the time that you and I were twirling dandias, um, I started the process of coming out. And actually, so it started with the death of a kid named Matthew Shepard in Wyoming. And so some people from the 90s might remember, but for younger folks who don't know, uh, Matthew Shepard was a kid a lot like me. He was actually the same age as me, came from a very small conservative town, just like I did, uh, went to a big university, just like I did, in a big red state. And um, while he was studying there, he was attacked by two men who ended up taking him out to a field, beating the pulp out of him, tying him to a post. And his body was found a couple of days later, and he was in a coma for almost a week, and then he died. And the night that he died, I remember coming home to my apartment on campus, and I saw the news story, drove back to campus, went inside the student union, and there was only one advisor still working that late at night. And I, he was brand new to the university. He had just joined a few weeks earlier. And I remember walking up to him and saying, I need to talk to somebody. And he's like, what's going on? And I said, I need to tell somebody that I'm gay. And it was the first time I'd said those words out loud. And it just so happened that the advisor, his name was Scott Collier, uh, looked at me and said, I'm gay too. And we sat down and had a conversation. And I had found the right stranger to come out to because he told me really important advice, which is he said, your life is about to get so much better in ways you couldn't have imagined because you don't have to live with a lie anymore. You don't have to pretend anymore. You're going to start walking taller and your shoulders are going to go back and you're breathing is going to become better. And you're just going to become a better person to be around because you're not constantly trying to cover this up. And so my life started transforming. And it started a process by which I began to tell close friends, and then eventually coworkers, and then ultimately telling my parents uh, about six months later. And all that happened in my senior year. Wow. So out of curiosity, did you find it difficult to come out to kind of our South Asian community? Was it something that was not even an option for you? You know, what I quickly realized is as I started telling friends on campus, 
um, and some of my Indian friends started finding out, I realized that I didn't have a lot of time now because if my friends, and you know, in our community, there's a lot of gossip and rumors spread like wildfire. So I thought if people start finding out on campus, they're going to tell their parents and eventually their parents are going to tell somebody who knows my parents. Yeah. And to me, that was sort of the nightmare scenarios. I didn't want my parents to hear it from anybody else. And so I had to put a plan in motion very quickly to figure out how to come out to my parents, which was, of course, the scariest piece of the whole puzzle. But it ended up being a really wonderful experience. And, um, you know, it's particularly with my dad. He was just incredibly supportive and accepting. And, and right away, without taking a beat, without taking a moment, as soon as I told him, his first reaction was, we love you. You are our hero. You are our Hira, which means diamond. And nothing's going to change that. And then my dad did probably one of the most courageous acts I've ever seen in my life, which is he went home and he wrote a letter to all his brothers and sisters, all my uncles and aunties growing up, our whole community. And he told a story of coming to campus and seeing me and having me tell my truth. And he ended the letter by saying, you know, we're really proud of our son. And if you'd like to be a part of our lives, then we need you to be proud of him too, because there is no reason for shame here. There is no reason for gossip. This is who he is, and this is who he always has been. Those are parents right there. Yeah, that's serious. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, that's not a common story for everyone uh, coming out to their parents, especially probably in the South Asian community, I would assume. And so, I mean, kudos to them. That's amazing. And then during this time, also career-wise, were you always going to get into like public service, or was this something that happened when you got into the program at Syracuse? So it was um, it was actually something that had been growing for a while because you know you and I met through our work on the Indian Students Association and and ultimately through um, you know the Ross group that we were part of. But while I was doing student leadership on campus, I became increasingly involved not just at a campus level but at a state level in working on legislation. We actually had a bill. Uh, to fund the student union that we got passed through the state legislature. And so while I'm on this pre-med track and failing miserably at it, what FOI really was, the Festival of India, this conference of, of ISAs around the South, was it was a leadership opportunity because it was thinking through more than just how can we have a bunch of Indian kids get together and throw really good parties. It was like, what is the agenda that we want to pursue as a community and as a group of people? And this all happened at a time at the University of Texas when there was a lot of activism happening on campus. So if you think back to 1997-98, um, affirmative action was being threatened um, by, the, by, the, by the courts. And our Board of Regents was actually tr wrestling with this issue. And so you saw this coalition of Asian American, African American, and Latino students, and a lot of immigrant kids coming together and saying, no, we need to have uh, a case for diversity on our campus. And so I think that year, 98, the year that we were doing Festival of India, the year we were twirling Nandias, the year I was coming out of the closet, that same year, we were named the biggest activist campus on in the country um, by Mother Jones Magazine. And it was through that that my political activism really started. Wow. So, Parag, you were actually doing legit stuff. I was actually just trying to throw parties. So this is, this is all, all good stuff to know. Um, so then I guess after Syracuse, you got into what you call the PMI program, right? In DC? Yeah, the Presidential Management Internship. Okay, so I don't know anything about it. Could you can you tell me more about it and, and how you got in and, and how that experience was? Sure. The PMI program, by the way, has since been renamed to the PMF because okay. it turns out that, uh, number one, we weren't really interns. We were paid staff. And second of all, uh, in Washington, D.C., PMI is the name of the parking garages all over town. And so it was just <laughs> bad branding. But basically... Okay. The, the Presidential Management Fellowship, as it's called now, was created by Jimmy Carter back in the 70s. And the idea behind it was 
that President Carter was looking down the road and realizing that we were going to have a big problem in the federal government. The government was not attracting young people into its ranks. It was seen as sort of a job for older folks to do. It wasn't seen as a cool or a sexy environment to be in. And so what he wanted to do was create this fellowship program by which they would recruit really top performing students from law schools, public policy schools, social work schools, and and others uh, to come and work in the federal government. And the idea of it is it's a two-year fellowship in the federal government where you get to work in an agency or in an office. And then during your two years, you get to do rotations in other offices. So by the end of your fellowship, you've got a pretty good sense of how the government works and you've gotten to see it from different viewpoints. And the hope was that many of these fellows would ultimately stay on and build their careers in public service rather than doing what most of us were doing in the late 90s, which is moving to the private sector or the consulting world or to NGOs. They wanted to make government the place to be for the best and the brightest. And so each year they take 400 fellows. I think it's now since gone up to 800. Uh, from, and they're nominated by their school. So I was very lucky because I went to Syracuse and it was a school that had a very strong public policy program. Uh, they nominated, I think, five of us uh, to be fellows and we all got it. And so I ended up going to D.C. to work for two years, what I thought would be two years, and then ended up becoming sort of like a lifetime change for me. And during this PMI program, or sorry, PMF program now, were there a lot of South Asians with you, kind of in the program with you, or were you kind of like the only one doing this? So the federal government was interesting because, you know, this was the waning days of the Clinton administration. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Democrats in particular had a handful of South Asians in leadership positions. In fact, I was really fortunate that when I got the fellowship, the woman who hired me uh, to work at the White House uh, was another South Asian lady. Her name is Shamina Singh, and she's Punjabi American, and she was the highest ranking Indian American in the Clinton administration, but there weren't that many. And in fact, Back in the early days, you know, in the early 2000s, during the early Bush years, um, there were about a handful of us who worked in politics, who worked in Congress, who worked in lobbying and consulting firms. And we used to get together in the cafeteria of one of the congressional office buildings. And it was literally like, you know, five of us. And then over the years, that group grew and grew and grew to the point where we were like putting tables together in the cafeteria. And then eventually we just became too big for it. So we started having, you know, events uh, off campus. And I was really excited by the time of the Obama administration, really during his campaign, you saw this whole new generation of, of basic kids who got inspired to get into politics and who didn't face the same barriers that I faced, you know, with my parents and my community explaining why I wasn't being a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Now it's this huge number of people. And you look at the Obama administration and even the Trump administration, you see South Asians in so many leadership roles. And so I think overall, it's a good thing to see more representation. I think now we just have to be a little bit more critical and analyzing, like, what are we doing with this new voice and this new power? So it feels like you were kind of there from the beginning, like you were part of the, the startup phase for South Asians in public service, maybe. I don't, I don't know if that's the right way to put it. But and it also seems like what, from what you're saying, that it was kind of harder to break the barrier of getting into public service and, and politics versus coming out um, as a gay man. Yeah, in some ways, my mom says that the biggest shock of her life was not that I was gay. It was that I was not going into medicine. <laughs> and um, so she, she she says, you had to give me the one-two punch, didn't you? Nice. And But she also said you can marry Karen Johar, right? She did say that. And in fact, I years later when I met Karen, because Karen Johar was her only gay reference. Yeah. And so because she was like, okay, I've got to find some way. And what's really funny about my mom is after she sort of got over the fact that I was gay, she suddenly became suspicious of everybody. So it was like any unmarried cousin over the age of 30, oh, well, she must be a lesbian. And I'm like, no, mom, that, like your gaydar doesn't work. So try, stop trying to pretend like you have it. But Gara and Johar was like her one person, right, that she could point in like, well, he's clearly gay. So Prague, that, that's how we'll resolve this is you'll just marry Gara and Johar and it'll be fine. And so when I met him last year, 
I, the first thing I said to him was, I was like, first of all, thank you for your movies. Second of all, your movies are the reason my mom and I have bonding time. Like we love to watch them together. It's a really special thing for us. We bond over your films. Aww. And third of all, my mom thought I should marry you when I came out to her. And luckily, I, we both found other interests in our lives. That's very sweet. You know, it's, it's a way for your mom to kind of connect, right? Yeah. Like that's that's her way of being able to understand your point of view. Uh, you have such an interesting uh resume here. You, you you ran the election day boiler room in 2002 for the general election here in Dallas and Austin. Let's go to the term boiler room. Is it really, <laughs> is, is it really insane? Like, what does that mean? Because obviously the only thing I've seen is the movie. Um, and so how was that? Is it just completely crazy? Yeah, you know, I, I sometimes look at the terminology we use in politics, like boiler room or war room, and there are a lot of, there are a lot of heated metaphors, uh, to put it mildly. I ran a very calm, cool, and collected boiler room, um, mostly because I didn't let anybody else. I didn't let anybody else in it. One of the things that we piloted. I mean, this is this is a statement about politics in general, just to show you how much technology has influenced the way we run campaigns. In 2002, I had moved back to Dallas um, to work on a U.S. Senate race for Ron Kirk, who was the mayor of Dallas and was now um, seeking uh, the open Senate seat that Phil Graham had left vacant. And so we had run a statewide campaign, and that was a bad year for Democrats because remember that was the year, you know, halfway to the first term of George Bush, where we lost everything. We lost the House, we lost the Senate, um, and also because you know we were about to go to war against Iraq and Democrats were really portrayed as being on the wrong side of that issue. We were portrayed as being sort of anti-war and pacifist and whatever. So the boiler room on election day, because what was interesting about Ron Kirk to me is he was this rare Democrat, African-American, big city mayor who really bridged the divide between conservatives and liberals. He had been very successful in Dallas in bringing the business community and the environmentalists together around solutions for the city. And so he was seen as like the great hope for the future of Texas. He'd also been a statewide leader as secretary of state for the for, for Texas under Ann Richards when she was governor. So on election day, we actually thought that we had a shot. It ended up being that we got creamed and all Democrats really got creamed that day. So what we did was, uh, you know, state-of-the-art technology in 2002 was we set up a phone bank system around the state of Texas. Because remember, Texas is huge, right? You have 21 million people. You have like, you know, 240 some odd counties. It's too hard to like track everything in real time. So what we did is we used data modeling to figure out what were the key precincts in Democratic areas that needed to have high turnout, in swing areas that needed to have, you know, a, a crossover vote. And what we did is on election day, we had volunteers sitting at those precincts, and every hour they would dial into a 1-800 number, type in the number of people who voted, so that from my headquarters in the boiler room, I could see what was going on in real time. And then I could tell volunteers, like, hey, we need an increased surge in this county, or we need more people in this precinct knocking on doors, so that we could actually, you know, in real time affect the vote. Of course, nowadays, that stuff is like even more advanced with digital technology and social media. So you can literally, as election day goes on over that 12 hour period, you can actually see on a map, a heat map, you can see like where African-American turnout is depressed and we need to send automated phone calls to those households or where you have white suburban moms aren't coming out. So you need to go do like a last after school push to them. It's amazing how much data has contributed uh, in good ways and in bad to making politics much more targeted. Uh, and even the messaging and the outreach is really, really specific. So then from there, uh, you went to Vermont, it looks like for a little a, a stint. Um, and then mm -hmm. you head back to DC, where it looks like you stayed there for about 14 years. So was this was this time in DC when you went back, was that kind of not the start of your career, but where it all kind of ramped up for you? Yeah, because I think, you know, in a way for Democrats and for me as a Democratic operative, we'd kind of hit rock bottom around 2005, right? We had lost 
everything. And, you know, people nowadays will look back and say, well, the Democrats have had a couple of bad election cycles and Democrats are sort of, you know, without a message and they're not, they're not getting the vote. I have to remind folks that in the 25 years that I've been eligible to vote, we've had seven presidential elections. And in six of those seven elections, the Democratic candidate got more votes than the Republican candidate. We just had unfortunate infrastructure so that in Al Gore's case, we stopped counting votes before it was done, and he would have won had they counted them. And in the case of Hillary Clinton, you know, the Electoral College, uh, you know, ended up uh, superseding the popular vote. But so, yeah, those are institutional things we got to deal with. We got to deal with voter suppression. We got to deal with voter intimidation, all the things, all the infrastructure things that keep us from having real democracy. But when it comes to the Democratic Party, I think that we have been around, you know, we're the oldest political party in the world. We've been around for over 150 years. We're not going anywhere. And we actually have been really successful in getting people to believe what we believe and to getting people to come vote uh, those beliefs. But I think we have to do a better job of being more strategic about where and how we get those votes so that we actually win elections. Um, so when I joined uh, the Democratic National Committee in 2005, we had just had the one election in 25 years where we actually lost the popular vote. And that was uh, John Kerry's race in 20 2004. So we walked into the DNC at the lowest possible point, right? We were out of power at every level of government in most of the states in the country, and uh, we were in the tall in the tall grass. And what we did then is over the next three and a half years, we completely turned the place around. And I like to say that those were the, the three and a half winningest years of the modern Democratic Party, because by the time I left in 2008, we had taken back the Congress, the House and the Senate, the majority of state legislative bodies, the presidency of the United States, the majority of governorships, like... The entire country, it was completely different by the time we left. And of course, we elected Barack Obama, the first African-American president of the United States, which was not just an accomplishment for Democrats, but it was an accomplishment for progress in this country. And so the way we did it is under the leadership of Howard Dean, who was the candidate I worked for in Vermont and then became chair of the DNC, is we again went back to basics, which is what is our message? What is our organizing plan? And how are we going to finance this through small dollar donations? And that theory worked. We did a 50-state strategy. And during those three and a half years, I traveled to 49 out of 50 states, train organizers, and to get us back on message. And it worked because uh, because people got excited about it. Of course, having Barack Obama, somebody who was really charismatic, had a strong, compelling message, a great story, it just was icing on the cake. So all the machine we created just turned on for him. Yeah, it all, it all kind of came together. So it, it seems like you were there kind of during the low and the high then in 2008 and during those times. So yeah. pretty cool. All right, Barack, let's get into the fun stuff. You were part of the Obama-Biden transition team. It was heady days, man. 2009, it felt like, you know, the stars had aligned. It wasn't just that we had Barack Obama in the White House. We had, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. We had Harry Reid as Senate Majority Leader. So for the first time in a really long time, we had Democrats in control, you know, of at least two of the branches of government. And the opportunities and the possibilities really seemed endless. Um, and a, the other thing that really happened in Washington, D.C. is... Obama made government cool again. So I worked on something called the transition team. And I think folks may not know that, you know, when the election happens in November, there's about 60 days between the election and the inauguration of the president in which you have to build an entire government basically from scratch. And so I was part of the team of people that did that. And, and my... Sorry, I'm interrupting you, but how, do you, how did you get chosen for that? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that because I've always wondered how I got chosen. I think it's just because the guy who was running that department had met me during the campaign, and I guess he liked me. And so he called me literally the day after the election. I was I spent election day in Pittsburgh, and I was out there getting out the vote for Obama. I was helping to run uh, radio communications for Western Pennsylvania. And um, that night, actually, 
um, my dad called me like around 11 or 12 after we had won the race. And he said, hey, I know you're busy. I was like at some victory party. He said, I know you're busy, but I just want you to know that it's morning in India right now. And people are literally taken to the streets to celebrate the election of Obama. And I mean, I still get goosebumps thinking about that because when's the last time the election of American president was a global event like that? So the next morning, I'm driving home to Washington, D.C. from Pittsburgh, and I get a call uh, from this guy who I'd worked with on the campaign. He's like, listen, we've now got to build a government, and we're looking for people. Would you be open to joining the team? And he didn't really tell me what the job was. He was like, just come, and we'll figure it out. And over the next week, as I quit my job at the DNC and, and joined the transition team, the job kept expanding. And you have to remember, this job only lasts for you know 60 days. So in that 60 days, you've got to do a lot of engagement. And the other thing that was sort of tempering all the excitement, two things happened that made that time really difficult. One was that on the same night that Barack Obama was elected president, uh, in California, the voters passed something called Proposition 8, where California had had a marriage equality for gay and lesbian couples already done. And the voters actually went to the polls and undid it. And they made uh, same-sex marriage illegal, which was a huge blow because nobody thought we'd lose in California. You know, we'd lost in other places, but California was progressive. So that was one awful thing to know that, you know, that voters in California had gone to the polls and on the same ballot where they voted for Barack Obama, they voted against marriage equality. And so that was really a wake-up call for a lot of Why do you think that happened with California? That Because that was shocking. There's a lot of speculation about it. You know, the initial storyline that came out was that it was black voters, right? That black voters came out in big numbers and voted for Obama, but voted against marriage equality. It turned out that that's actually a very unfair characterization because race wasn't the determining factor. When you really look at the polls, and this is why data is so important, it wasn't race that was the determining factor. It was church attendance. We, we measure one of the factors is church going attendance. And people who went to church more often, which also tended to be heavily African-American, tended to vote against marriage equality. And the other part of the problem was, is that the campaign that was run was not an inclusive campaign. So the people who were on the pro-marriage equality side were mostly white people. So the people making the decisions, the people coming up with the advertisements and, the, and, and all the materials were, it was a very white-centric campaign and they didn't show Asian American and Latino and black faces. Well, California is a majority minority state. So if you aren't belong minority coalitions as part of it, you're not going to win. And so there was a wake-up call. And frankly, they learned their lesson because within a couple of years, they had completely changed their strategy and you saw much more engagement of communities of color in Proposition 8. So, so that was the one thing that was tempering the excitement. The other big thing tempering our excitement was that, you know, September 15th, uh, 2008, the entire global economy crashed and Lehman Brothers, uh, you know, set off this chain of events that led to a global crisis. So we were walking into government, you know, wanting to be excited, but knowing that all these big ideas that we had talked about on the campaign around civil rights and women's rights and student loans for young people and environmental reform, all of it was going to be put on hold until we dealt with like this big problem, which was rapid unemployment. We got to like 9% unemployment. It was the greatest crisis since the Great Depression. So all of our energy got turned to us. So what should have been a lot of fun and celebratory and exciting was made very, very sober by the realities that we were walking into. Was it fair to say that 2010 to 2017 were kind of your Obama years? You were a special assistant in the U.S. Department of Labor and then chief of staff and senior advisor to our first Indian Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy. So many questions about those times. Do you have any special highlights you want to talk about during those times? In spite of the challenges we faced, um, and certainly, you know, we, we look back and I talked to my colleagues who served in the Obama administration. There are certainly regrets. There are, there are things that we wish we had gotten more traction on. We look at, you know, the Affordable Care Act, which was a once in a generation accomplishment, but certainly there could have been improvements in the way it was done. Uh, we look at the gun violence issue that really terrorized our country and continues to do so. Uh, we look at the issue of racial inequality and uh, the fact that, you know, even with the black president and everybody's talking about it being a post-racial society, uh, crime against African-Americans continue unabated and it gave birth to the Black Lives Matter movement. 
But in terms of like moments that I really uh, am proud of, one of them is that, you know, when I was at the Department of Labor, I worked for a civil rights agency and our job was to ensure that workers were not discriminated against in the workplace and also that companies that benefited from uh, federal dollars, federal contractors, uh, were taking affirmative action to hire women, minorities, people with disabilities and veterans. And when I started working in that office, I remember at my job interview, the woman who headed the agency, her name is Patricia Shu. she's a, a whip smart, you know, civil rights lawyer. She asked me a question. She said, Parag, when you look at what we do around race, color, sex, uh, religion, veteran status, disability, what do you feel is missing from that list? And I said, well, sexual orientation is not on there. And she said, that's right. She said, if you come work for me, we will get it added to that list and we will make sure that LGBT Americans are protected as well. And remember, she's making this promise in an environment where a very conservative Republican Congress is trying to block everything that we try to do. And so I was like, look, you know, that's nice of you to say, but we've been trying for years to get the Employment Non-Discrimination Act passed through Congress. And she's like, right, but we don't need Congress for this because the president is the CEO of the federal government and he can decide who we do business with and who we don't do business with. And federal contracting is a multi-billion dollar industry. So if we can get the biggest companies in the country to change their policies so they can keep doing business with the government, imagine the impact that can have on the whole workforce. And four years later, I was sitting maybe 10 feet from the president of the United States in the White House when he signed the executive order adding sexual orientation to the list of protected classes. Man, your parents must have been super happy, super proud. Yeah, it's such a great part of history to be part of. No, my mom is still sending me medical school applications. <laughs> <laughs> She's still sending you pictures of Karen Johar. She's like, What's Can I tell on? you that when I when I got the job working for Vivek, so Vivek becomes the Surgeon General, it took us 13 months to get him confirmed because, of course, the gun lobby was very opposed to him. And so there's all this controversy. Yeah, I was going to ask you about, about that and, and the letter that he wrote, right, that kind of held up his nomination. And sorry, sorry, continue. I wanted to ask you about that, though, because obviously Parkland just happened. Uh, two weeks ago, sadly. And and I, had a, I was just wondering what happened to that letter, that memo? Do you think people are looking at it now again? I think you're talking about, so w- what you're referring to is um, right after the Newtown shootings, before he had become Surgeon General, or even, um, yeah, it's Andy Hook. Um, he had tweeted, he was the head of a group called Doctors for America, which represented physicians across the country. And he had posted a tweet, a very simple tweet saying, you know, when are we going to realize that guns are a public health issue? Which, by the way, should come as no surprise to anybody. It's, it's the most benign thing you could possibly say. Frankly, the American Medical Association, three years later, actually issued a proclamation saying, yes, guns are a public health issue. But Vivek, you know, who likes to tell it like it is and, and who thinks that it's the job of scientists and doctors to give you the truth, um, he put out this tweet. And um, years later, when he was going through his Senate confirmation, it came up in the hearing and the NRA uh, decided to make an issue out of it. And so they sent a letter to every single men- member of the U.S. Senate, all 100 members, saying that if they voted for Vivek's confirmation, that the NRA would challenge them in their elections. And so all of a sudden, remember at this time, the Democrats had the majority in the Senate. We had, like I think, a 55-vote majority. All of a sudden, these Democrats from conservative states like Arkansas and North Dakota and others and Montana were suddenly in this very awkward position because they had elections coming up in November, and this was February. They did not want to be on the wrong side of the NRA because the NRA can put a lot of money into these elections and really cost you your seat. So we had these um, these Democrats who kind of dropped out. And so we spent the next several months, uh, a team of us, uh, putting together a strategy. And, and the centerpiece of our strategy to get Vivek confirmed was to do the one thing that no one in the White House and no one anywhere else had really thought of, which is this might be time to wake up the Indian American community and get them politically activated. Because for many, many years, Indian Americans had sort of been skirting on the edges of politics. And so among our parents' generation, some would like donate money to candidates, 
Uh, but many of them were doing it really on the margins, not actually making hard asks of these politicians that were getting support from our community. And remember, by this point, we're about 3 million people in this country. So not a sizable block, but an, an influential block. So what we did is we started going through the donor list of all these senators, Democrats and Republicans, Marco Rubio in Florida, uh, Harry Reid in Nevada, Dick Durbin in Illinois. And we started finding all the Indian uncles and aunties who had ever written a check to them. And we literally started cold calling these people and saying, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, can we all agree that the first Indian American nominee to be the Surgeon General should not be blocked by the NRA of all people, for God's sakes. Let's not let this stop us from, from making... And just for a tw- just from a tweet, I didn't realize that. I thought it was like a yeah. memo or a letter. Not that, not that that should have made a difference either, but just from one tweet, huh? Yeah. I didn't know that. And what was amazing to see is how the community responded. I mean, you had Indian people who had never been politically active at all suddenly phone banking the Senate and calling their senators over and over again and saying, you must confirm Vivek Murthy. I heard from so many Senate staff that the volume of calls that they got from Indian American constituents over that was really just overwhelming. And it, and it left an impression. And I think, you know, in one particular case with Rubio in Florida, um, who couldn't vote for Vivek, because if he did, he'd be going against his party, and uh, it would be political suicide for him. He ultimately, uh, in sort of, a, I guess, an act of uh, compromise, he actually walked out of the Senate at the moment of the vote. So he didn't have to vote for him, but he also didn't have to vote against him. Because remember, Rubio gets a lot of money from Indian American Republicans in Florida. And he at the time was thinking about running for president. So the argument we made to him is, dude, if you want to run for president, that Indian American money is going to be gone if you have the balls to vote against our first Surgeon General candidate. So it was it was a powerful thing. And and I, as I like to remind people, even now, when we think about things like Parkland, it's great to see these high school students are like leading the, the movement because that's, that's what should happen is the young, young people really need to lead the movements for change in this country. But I, I remind people who feel defeatist about it and like, well, the NRA is too powerful. No, they're not because we beat them. We beat them once. And, and the people who beat the NRA were a bunch of uncles and aunties from the Indian community. I was going to ask you, are these uncles and aunties like our parents' age or yeah. are they younger? I mean, yes. Yeah. Wow. They're that genera- wow. They're, that's the generation that has all the money. Like our generation is like activists and progressive, but we don't have the kind of money and resources. Our parents' generation has like built wealth over the last 40 years. And now they're using that money and that influence, at least in this case, to do some good. Yeah. Well, we fall asleep during MCATs, so our parents could take care exactly. of it. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Wow. So yeah, any other, sorry, I wanted to just make sure, did you want to say any other highlights from that time? Did you, I know you had worked with Cal Penn as well. Wasn't he part of the... Yeah, he was, uh, he was part of the White House staff. He actually, the job that I did during the transition is the job that he took over uh, right after the inauguration. So for the first, I think, year or so of the Obama presidency, he was handling outreach to the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. He also helped organize the very first Diwali celebration in the White House with the president. So prior to that, you know, Clinton and Bush had done like events, but they had never been there personally. I think Clinton sent out greeting cards for Diwali. Bush did like a side event. But this was the first time that the president of the United States came, lit the dia. That was a big deal because symbols matter. And you know, I think as I look back at my work in government and politics, one of the big themes has been about representation. And so if you want to motivate people to feel like they're part of the discussion, give them a seat at the table, give them a voice in the decision making. And that's exactly what Obama did is he he didn't just say, I want your votes, and I want your money, and I want your support. He said, no, I want your talents, I want your skills, and I want your expertise, and I want you to come on inside government. And think about it, Cal Penn was a big movie star. And he gave up a career that he was doing really well in and took a break from it to come and work in public service and make like $35,000 a year and show up to work every day in a suit and tie at the White House. I mean, that's, it's not glamorous. No, no, definitely not. I, I, from, from what I know of him, he's a very passionate guy as well. So that's pretty amazing. Kind of apologize for not knowing this. 
What happened with Vivek Murthy and Trump? Did he, was he just relieved of his duties? What did he just what 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 was the story on that? <laughs> oh, relieved relieved of his duties is a very nice way of putting it, right? It, yeah, I, I was trying to I was trying to be you know a little bit. Uh, no, I kind of like it. I wanted to ask you one that question, and then you can answer the next question, which is where were you when Trump was elected? So, however you want to respond. Yeah. So. Um, he, so Vivek was fired. And um, a lot of people don't understand this, but there are a few positions in government that cross over presidential terms. So like, you know, the FBI director is a 10-year appointment, the chairwoman of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, she was, a, I think, a, a five-year appointment. Uh, the Surgeon General is a four-year term, regardless of when it starts. And Vivek had been nominated in uh, 2013. But because the Senate, you know, took over a year to confirm him, he didn't actually start the job until December 2014. So by the time Trump began, Vivek was only halfway through his term. And so the expectation, because it had happened before with other surgeons general, uh, was that he would continue and finish his two years. And we had had a lot of conversations about, you know, does it make sense to keep serving in this administration, given what Trump had done on the campaign trail, and given the, the methods he put out? And Vivek is one of those people who's really thoughtful about stuff like this. And he said, look, does it change the things that we care about? We care about tackling the opioid epidemic. We want to promote greater physical activity and health for the people. We want to uh, improve emotional well-being uh, and, and, and mental health uh, for the American public. Does it matter who sits in the White House when those are the goals? If not, then I should keep pursuing the work because the work is what matters, not the person who's in office. And you know, the other thing that people need to remember is that there's been a long history of surgeons general and presidents being in opposition to each other. So, for example, in the 1980s, when we were kids, uh, the Surgeon General was a guy named C. Everett Koop, who was appointed by Ronald Reagan and actually ended up serving almost eight years. And Koop uh, really went against Reagan by speaking out publicly about the AIDS epidemic. Reagan, by the way, couldn't be bothered to even acknowledge the epidemic until like six years into it, when millions of people had already gotten infected and thousands had died. And Koop went on national television and started talking about condoms being like the most effective way to prevent the transmission of AIDS. This was something that the Christian job yeah. was his job. He was the doctor. And, you know, he was a conservative and he, you know, but he was a Christian, but the Christian right and the, and the Republican party did not want him out there saying those. And he put his, he put his principles and his position ahead of his politics. And he said, no, I'm America's doctor. And my job is to tell people the truth. That this thing could kill you. And there's a way to prevent it from happening. And so Reagan tried to fire him. But the problem was, Coop was more popular than Reagan. And politically, it, it actually would have hurt him. So there's a history of this. Same thing happened years ago during the Nixon administration around tobacco, when the Surgeon General came out against tobacco, even though the Republicans were getting a ton of money from the big tobacco firms, and they didn't want him saying it. But that's our job. And Vivek said when he was sworn into the office, he gave a great speech in his swearing in where he said, you know, my job is to tell you the truth. And, and I'm not, you know, if, if I'm going to give you an opinion, I'll tell you its opinion. But my pledge to you is that I will always tell you the truth, even if the truth is hard to hear. And even if the truth makes some people uncomfortable. So it's unfortunate for, for President Trump and for his administration. I think that they don't have uh, somebody like Vivek, somebody with that character uh, in that yeah. place. But um, that, that's a real leader. That's what real leaders that do. That's what real leaders do. And then where were you when you found out Trump was elected or won, I guess? Yeah, I was, uh, I was in my apartment in D.C., um, I had actually had to work that day because I was, you know, as a federal employee. So while I was, you know, doing some volunteer work on the side for Hillary and raising money for her in my personal life, because of the the rules uh, that federal employees are governed by, uh, we have to be really careful about separating our political activity from our from our work. So I was actually I'd gone to work that day, and then I came home that evening. Uh, we'd actually bought a bottle of champagne to celebrate, and 
the bottle was never open. Let me put it that way. Oh my god! It was a heartbreaking day. I'm sure. I, I think going in, I think going into work the next day was really particularly hard because I think people don't realize this, but um, you know, in the federal government, you have about five or six thousand of us who are political appointees, meaning that we come in with the president and we leave with the president. And then there's this other group of like two million people who are career civil servants, right? They serve regardless of who the administration is. They're the they're the meat of these agencies. They keep the they keep the wheels running. And what was so hard the day after Trump's election was coming into the office uh, in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and just the look of terror and fear on the faces of the career civil servants, because we all we were all out of a job regardless, like whether Hillary won or Trump won. I, I was leaving because because the new president should get to pick his or her appointees. But but the career people have to serve no matter what. And I just we didn't have the words for them. Like we honestly didn't know what to say to them because it wasn't like it was just a Republican coming in. This was not an ordinary Republican. This was somebody who had really demonized government and who had demonized government employees like them. And they were now going to have to work for that person. And uh, it was just really hard. It was really hard to figure out um, how to provide comfort and what to say to those colleagues of ours that that we love serving with for so many years. And so in your opinion, like what's currently going on with our political atmosphere and Trump and this administration, do you think this is all just a phase the U.S. is going through or is this going to last? Like, is this, is he going to be, is it, is it very likely he could be elected again? Look, you never want to predict this far out on an election because I've learned, one thing I've learned in politics is that, you know, a year in politics is a lifetime in any other industry. So we don't know what's going to happen between now and 2020 when the next presidential election happens. What we do know is that the Trump administration has awakened the spirit in the country that was really dormant for a long time. And I haven't seen anything like this, at least in my life. I, it, it reminds me of how I've heard older folks describe the Vietnam War era, which is people were literally coming out of their homes, banging their pots and pans. People were going to their churches and, and turning their churches into like, you know, active as hotspots. And I, uh, I'm, I'm actually really uh, happy to see that I'm buoyed by this, this movement that seems to be emerging, and particularly what I see happening among young people. Because like I said earlier, I feel like all the great change in our country, whether it's anti-slavery, you know, civil rights, uh, women's rights, uh, labor union movements, they're often led by and, and run by uh, the younger generations because the younger generation doesn't feel so tied to doing things the way they've been done in the past. And so they're willing to be open to new ways of thinking, new ways of communicating, new ways of doing things. Look, I think we can all sit here and talk about all the negatives that are happening and all the challenges that are facing our country. And it's hard because after eight years of Obama, we're just used to a certain kind of president. And so when you see this administration, this constant every day, it feels like scandal this and scandal that, uh, it can feel really demoralizing. But if you want to find hope, if you want to find optimism, look to those kids in Parkland, look to those pussy hat wearing women uh, marching in the streets, not just of New York and DC, but in small towns across this country, look to the immigrants who are fighting back these dreamers who have so much courage, whose parents are being deported left and right and are standing up and speaking out uh, to the federal government and saying, we will not budge, we will not give up, we will not move. Um, you're seeing the spirit awaken in our country, which regardless of whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent or whatever, um, I think we all got to get in the game because the lesson from the last election is that democracy only works when everybody participates. And as President Bartlett would say, decisions are made by those who show up, right? And when I used to train for the DNC, one of the, my favorite uh, examples to give was in 2004, that one election where we did not win the popular vote in the last 25 years. In 2004, we, look, we were disappointed that John Kerry didn't win, but 
one thing that we all celebrated, whether you were Republican or Democrat, was this huge turnout, right? It was the first year of the Iraq war. I think you had something like 67% turnout in the election. It's the largest turnout we've seen since 18-year-olds got the right to vote in the, during the Vietnam War period. And I would tell people that our standards are too low. Because if you look in places like India or in places like Australia, where they have mandatory voter registration, they get 80, 90, 95% voter turnout in their elections. And even in India, when they had an election years ago, uh, and they had something like 85% turnout, the Times of India headline the next day after the election ended was failure of democracy. And the criticism that they made is they said, how can a country that has only been independent for 67 years at this point, how can a country that fought uh, you know, tooth and nail to become free and independent from their British colonializers, how can this country take its democracy for granted? Who are these 13% who don't think that they have to show up and vote and be a part of democracy? So these standards and the expectations we hold ourselves to are too low in this country. Everybody needs to be engaged in the game. And I don't just mean by voting. You need to vote, and then you need to get everybody else in your household to vote. You need to stay informed on the issues. You need to call your members of Congress. You need to call your city council people. You need to have an opinion about things, and you need to let that opinion be heard. Because otherwise, you find yourself in a situation where you're being governed by people who do not represent you and who do not reflect your will. And that's when a democracy fails. Do you think it's because... Americans in general are kind of more individualistic. Like if it's not affecting me, then I have don't have to worry about it, right? And it's kind of a more what affects me, what doesn't kind of attitude. I think it's complacency. I think that if you look at our history, voting always goes up when people feel threatened. So you see greater activation after wars, after terrorist attacks. Um, when people feel motivated, they'll vote. When things are go- going well, when people feel good about the world and they feel complacent, um, they, they tend to opt out. And then the other thing is disenfranchisement. Let's not forget, it's not just simply a matter of people being apathetic. There are people who have for, for 200 years been systematically kept out of the decision-making process. They've been forced out of civic life and they're now starting to make gains. And I, I talk about African-Americans, I'm talking about women, I'm talking about immigrants, I'm talking about Latinos and Asian-Americans, I'm talking about people with disabilities. You look at the barriers to participation, whether it's voting, running for office, you know, uh, serving in, in government, there are huge barriers. And so at some point, a person looks at this and says, I give up. It's too complicated. It's too confusing. The barriers to entry are too great. And so I understand that. And I think it's the job of those of us who are in positions of power to use that power to open the doors. By the way, let me just say, this is the reason why I love working for immigrants. You know, I worked for, I worked, today I work for MasterCard and our CEO is a guy named Ajay Banga, who is an immigrant from, uh, from India. Before that, I worked for Vivek Murthy, who himself is an immigrant, came here as a young child, was Surgeon General. Before that, I worked for this woman, Pat Shu, who's uh, uh, of Chinese and Irish ancestry. Her parents are both immigrants to this country. And the thing I love about working for immigrants, I realized, is that not just that they have a progressive worldview, but if you come from an immigrant background, if you're a first or second generation, you still have that itch. You're right. You have the itch to fix what's broken. And so you look at the system, and I see this uh, with my partner, Vebo, who's applying for his green card right now. And you look at all the things in the system that are broken and you get through it and you work hard and you keep your head down. And you're like, I'm going to just plow through. I'm going to plow through. But once you get to the other side of it, once you get that green card, you get that citizenship, you get that job, you're like, we really need to do something to make it easier for the next guy. That's the beauty of the people I work for is everyone I have worked for uh, from Ajay to Vivek to Pat has like looked at the world around them and says, how can we just make it a little bit better, a little bit easier 
because it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't have to be this hard. I went through the hard part, but I don't want my kids to have to go through that hard part. How has um, how has Vebo's process been getting the green card? Has it been difficult? It has. And you know, for those who criticize our immigration system and say we got to deport all the so-called illegals, which by the way, the term is really offensive because a human being cannot be illegal. A human being has, has a birthright to live and breathe and walk on this planet. Um, but if but what people forget oftentimes is, well, my mom and dad did it the right way. Well, first of all, when my mom and dad did it, it was much, much easier. Like, yes, there were barriers, but the cost of doing it, the complexity of doing it, the time that it took to get it done was much, much faster. And that's the reason why when our parents came, they were able to sponsor their brothers, their sisters, their parents, uh, and bring over their families. So now you see some people in, in government attacking that, calling it chain migration and, and, and being cynical about it. But let's be clear. This country was built on so-called chain migration. You want people to come here with their families and to settle as communities and to have that social network and that support structure. Because think about it, when my dad came here, he didn't have credit. No bank was going to give him a loan. How did he open his first business, his first motel? He got loans from like three other Patel families and they pulled their money together. And that business today employs dozens of people and that's good for the country. So so the process today is much more complicated. And my partner, Vebov, since we haven't introduced him yet, uh, he and I have been together for six years. We started dating in 2012, and he grew up in India. Uh, he came here as a student, so he came on a student visa, and then he got a job, so he got the what's called the H-1B visa, which is the one that allows you to work. And he's since been trying to apply for the green card. And it's it's hard for me to fathom as somebody who worked in the government for so long to see just how broken our system is. Even when you do it the correct way, even when you follow the rules and you do the process right, you know, the lawyer fees, the application fees, the, the, the runaround that you give, this form needs to be done differently, that form needs to be done differently. It's a completely inefficient process. And it's almost like the process is made for you to fail in. Um, lucky for us, we have the resources, we have the ability to get support and help. We've got friends and family who've gone through it. We've got a great immigration lawyer who's been helping us. But it's really heartbreaking. It's almost like you expect something like that to happen in India. I mean, no offense to our country. I love that place. But, you know, the the process of going through paperwork there and, and many different examples I have when I lived there, it was just always such a pain, you know, and you don't expect that to happen here, right? It's really interesting that you point that out because I was kind of making the same argument, right? Like America so great, we have technology, we're efficient, and India's like so backwards. So around the same time that um, Veva was applying for his H-1B visa, I decided to apply for the OCI card, which is the Overseas Citizen of India card. And the Indian government had just started issuing them, and they were encouraging people like us who have you know, Indian ancestry to apply so that we'd have lifetime visa to go in and out of the country. My application for the OCI was a thousand times faster and more efficient and better than his application for the H-1B visa. And we both got ours on the exact same day. He was in Delhi picking up his, uh, his uh, getting his visa stamp. And I was in DC getting my OCI card at the Indian embassy. And I, we posted a photo on Facebook of the two of us holding it up. But what's behind that photo is that his process was way worse than mine was. Uh, mine was three months, $150. You send to this address, you fill out these three forms and you're done. And it was easy. Yeah, no, I went through it as well. And I remember it being really quick. So no, you make a good point. And it's interesting to hear about the green car stories because, I mean, I have cousins going through it as well. So it's interesting to hear what they both gone through. And now you guys are based in New York, uh, upstate New York, correct? <laughs> Westchester. I love that people go out upstate. We're like 30 minutes from Manhattan, but sure, we're, up, we're upstate New York. I know. Not Manhattan, so you say upstate. Who knows? Um, and you are working with MasterCard um, at the Center for Inclusive yeah. Growth. Well, first, I want to ask, do you miss the D.C. bubble? No, I do not miss it. In fact... I was in DC this past weekend and, you know, I was trying to feel senti about the whole thing and I did not. 
I was like, I'm so glad I'm not here anymore. Like, I love my friends in DC. Don't get me wrong. The people and the experiences that I had, but DC, DC is one of those places that has really changed in the last year because of the, the change in government. And so I'm really glad to be taking a break from it. And, and how is your experience um, at the Center for Inclusive Growth? You started when? This past year? Two years ago? Yeah, this past year? I started, yeah, I started about eight months ago. And uh, so the story here is that the same woman who hired me 17 years ago to work in the government at the White House, Shamina Singh, uh, calls me about a week after Trump's inauguration. And remember, I'm still working in the government because Vivek's still working in the government because he hadn't yet been fired. And we thought we were going to have two more years left on the term. So it's about a week after the inauguration and Shamina calls me. By the way, I should tell you, Shamina not only hired me at the White House, she's the one who hired me to go work on that US Senate race in Dallas. And then two years later, she hired me again to work for a progressive political action committee called America Votes. So I I like to say that every time I found myself at a crossroads in life where I didn't know what to do, she's always standing right there with like, I got your next job ready to go. We're ready for you. Your, your office is waiting for you. And I feel you're like angel. She is. And she's my, she's my, she's my fairy godmother, um, but more like a big sister. And I tell people this because I think whatever your career is, whether you're in politics or law or medicine or business or whatever, IT, it's always good to find those people in your life. The people who are not just mentors, because mentors are a term, term that gets thrown around. Somebody who's going to really make an investment in you and your development because they genuinely care about you and they see potential in you. And so Shamina has always been that person for me. And so what happened was, um, she called me and she said, uh, "Do you want, are you ready to move to the private sector? And I had we had this conversation for many years. And I said, no, because I'm a government person. I'm a public service person. Like, maybe I can go work at a nonprofit or a foundation next. And she's like, well, I think you should check out what we're doing at MasterCard. Ajay Banga, our CEO, decided about 10 years ago when the company went public to really invest in philanthropic work. And he wanted his philanthropic work to be different than how other people do it. So most companies, their idea of philanthropy is check writing. You know, you, you want to give to Hurricane Harvey Relief, write a check. You want to help find a cure for AIDS, write a check. He said, we got to stop doing that because number one, it's not sustainable. It means that when the next CEO comes, they may care about 10 different things and they stop writing the checks to the 10 things I cared about. And so those NGOs that counted on the money suddenly it dries up. He said, our, our philanthropy should be in line with our business strategy, but it also should be in line with what we're good at because we have more than money to contribute to solving problems. So for MasterCard, a lot of people think that we're a credit card company. We are not. You get your credit card from a bank, Chase, Bank of America, whatever. We are a technology company. We create the networks by which payments are moved across 200 countries in the world. And because we control this technology network, we also sit on top of a mountain of amazing transaction data that if you mined it, could be used to solve big, big problems and come up with huge insights that could ultimately help us figure out the answer to solving poverty. So four years ago, Ajay created the Center for Inclusive Growth, which is a philanthropic arm of MasterCard, but we sit within the corporate headquarters. We're not a foundation. We're not a nonprofit. We're actually part of the company. But our job is not to make money for MasterCard. Our job is to test out ideas on how do you reduce income inequality? How do you end poverty? How do you create pathways to prosperity? And how do you take people who've been excluded from the economy and bring them into the economy in ways that's going to create economic growth for their communities? And so we do it through research. We do it through programs. But the most interesting thing we do is data philanthropy, which is taking MasterCard's data and taking the insights from that data and using it with other academics and with other nonprofits to solve some of these great questions. And so I've been here for about eight months and it's been an incredible experience because it's the soul of a public servant, but with the resources and the leverage of a private sector entity because private sector can scale in a way that government really can't. And so I'm getting to do that work. So with with this position now, you're work, obviously working globally. Are you working 
uh, with India a lot? Yeah. So for the first time in my life, I'm not domestically focused because when I worked in government and politics, I was all U.S. focused. I mean, obviously, with Surgeon General, there was some global aspect to it because we had like the Ebola outbreak. But this is really the first time that I'm getting to do work on a global scale. And so I got I actually uh, one of the first trips I did when I got here was I went to Delhi for the World Economic Forums uh, Summit. And uh, Ajay was the co-chair of it. And uh, it's a great opportunity in India right now because, you know, India, uh, kind of like what we were talking about with the OCI card, they're in a position to leapfrog the rest of the world. So while they've been behind on a lot of technology advancements, they can leapfrog really quickly uh, and completely digitize the way the country operates. And I'm just not, I'm not talking about just payments. I'm talking about education and healthcare and transportation and civil society. There's a huge opportunity there. And you have right now a government, both at the federal level and in a lot of the states, um, that really recognizes and wants to seize that opportunity. And it's across party lines because it's not just the BJP. It's it's really holistically. Um, and the cool thing about India, and I think the thing that's going to drive India, much like we're talking about the politics in the U.S., is, again, young people. Because India is poised to become the youngest country in the world in the next decade. And those young people are craving for new technologies, new innovations, new efficiencies to make their lives more convenient and better and to get rid of all the corruption and the and the bribery and all the things that are holding their country back from re- realizing their potential. And so having Ajay as a son of India, but an American CEO, bringing the resources of an American Fortune 500 company to bear on some of the big infrastructure and, and systemic challenges of a country like that, uh, the opportunities are endless. Nice. So what do you think, and this is just a side question because I lived there, you know, for about five years. Yeah. Um, it, it does have all this potential and all this great innovation and, I mean, so many intelligent people and, and they kind of have, every, have everything set to become this great country and, and a, a leader in many things. What do you think is the main thing holding them back, holding India back? Is it just the people? Is it the government? Is it everything? I mean, because I see both. I see the good and the bad. I just, and it feels like, like you said, all this potential is there um, and what's holding them back or, or am I getting it no, wrong? It, it, what's holding, what's holding them back, just like what's holding us back politically in the U.S. is a mindset, right? It's an antiquated mindset of doing the same thing that we've always done before and expecting a different result. And as long as that mindset doesn't change, and this is why I think young people are key to the change, but I also think that bringing people like minorities and women into the conversation can also be helpful. Because if you think about it, the system as it exists today has worked for certain people. It's worked for the wealthy. It's worked for people who are male. It's worked for people who have power. Um, And so if you want to get that mindset to change, you've got to bring the people who have not benefited from the system. So when I hear people say things like make America great again, I have to remind them that, well, what time period are you talking about? Because as bad as things feel like they are right now, you know, a good question for you and your listeners, Ami, is if you could pick a year in all of human history that you wanted to be born, what year would you pick? But here's the caveat. You don't get to pick where you're born or what gender you're born as or what race you're born as or in what religious sect you're born in. Now, not knowing those four things, pick a year you'd want to be born. And I think if you think about it, most of us would pick 2018 because as bad as things feel right now, we know that this is the best time to be a woman, to be a minority, to be a person with a disability, to be a person who's a lower caste, all those things because we made progress and we're going to make even more progress going forward. So I think when you, when you again, this is, this is sort of the theme of our conversation is when you open the doors and you give people a seat at the table who've never had a seat before, that's how things are going to change. And that's why I think the, the demographic dividend, dividend in India is way more important than the digital one. And the demographic dividend is youth, it's women, and it's the poor. As those three segments of society feel more empowered 
and they feel financially empowered, they feel educationally empowered, they feel like they have a decision-making role, we all win. We all win. No, exactly. And then I actually quickly wanted to come back to some of the points we talked about earlier. You you mentioned to me that South Asians are not activists by nature. And I think you also, uh, we, we covered it, but you think that's changing now. So I wouldn't say South Asians, I would say immigrants, right? Immigrants, because okay. Because when you immigrate to a different country, your first thought is not like, oh, let me move to America because there's so much wrong there. I want to fix it all, right? No, you move to it because you think it's better than the place you are right now. There's going to be more opportunity. It's going to be a better life for you and your kids. And you can make something of yourself there. So when the immigrant generation comes here, their first thought, our parents' generation is, let me get settled. Let me get married. Let me get a job. Let me build a household. And then let me build a community. And when you're trying to do those things, your intention is probably not going to be to rock the boat. You don't want to uh, affect things because you don't want to be the target of stuff. So I grew up in the South. I grew up in a very small town in central Texas. And people always ask me this, like, was there racism? Was there discrimination? Sure, there was. But my parents' mentality was they kind of brushed it off. Like there were little racist things every day in their lives that looking back, we now talk about it. But at the time, they just thought that that was the price you pay for immigrating to a country where you're different. And they thought that that was the, that was the price of exchange. So then what happens is then you have the second generation, right? You and me. And so we go and we, we're constantly pissed about things all the time. We're like, why does it have to be this hard? And we're not just pissed at like the American society. We're pissed about like the Indian uncles and aunties and the expectations and the living in the two cultures. So we're constantly, we're, we grow up feeling confused and angry all the time. Then a very funny thing happens. Then the third generation is born. And the third generation is, I think, the most interesting because, number one, they're far enough removed from the nonsense of the immigrant generation that they're not, they're not holding a grudge against it. So they're not pissed off that they have to say Gita class or that they have to go to Bharatanatyam practice or that they have to read you know, this puja or that puja. Because to them, it's like, oh, this is a connection to a heritage that I don't, I don't know. The second thing that happens is that when the third generation starts to experience discrimination and racism, their grandparents, meaning the first generation, suddenly do become activists. Because you're seeing this now, right? You're seeing it uh, in, the, in stories all over the country where you're having hate crimes and, and, and gun violence and, and all kinds of racist discrimination. And the parents' generation that previously was trying to keep their head down, you know, keep their nose to the grindstone and just make a life in this country. Now they're saying, hey, wait a minute. My grandchild is an American, born and raised an American, has the same rights and same, same expectations that any white kid should have with this country. So if they're experiencing racism, then I'm, I'm pissed about that and I'm going to say something. So I see in my own family is that my dad, who we tell us to let things go as kids, when it comes to his granddaughter, he's not telling her to let things go. He's like, no, you stand up and you fight for that and I'm going to be right there fighting by your side. So to me, it's the evolution of a South Asian activist. And this is the story I told you about Vivek Murthy, is when they saw how he was being treated by the NRA, these apolitical uncles and aunties got up off their butts and said, no way, because we paid the price so that our kids and our grandkids wouldn't have to pay the same price. We put up with the bullshit so that they don't have to put up with it. And now you're seeing sort of, again, the, the great awakening. We're, we're, we're suddenly woke, uh, woke uncles and aunties. And nothing is scarier to people than a woke auntie coming after you. Man, aunties be cray sometimes. And that's, it's give awesome. Their give, give me, give me a couple of years. I want to be holding a valen and I'm going to be okay you're with be it. Great you're you know, be a great activist it's, auntie. It's my turn. It's my turn to be, I know it's my turn to be an activist auntie. I'm so excited about it. The, the beauty of turning older, you just don't care anymore. And then kind of my last question on the South Asian point of view, we, and we talked about this briefly again before the interview, but what is your take on supporting Indians who are, and, and you, you use this great term, hats asses, or I'm not even sure what you call them. Ass hats. Yeah, ass hats. <laughs> supporting Indians in politics who are ass hats. Like, what, what is your take on people that support them just because they're Indian or South Asian? or? Whatever? Yeah, my, my, my theory on that is that brown is not the first thing that we consider, right? So 
Brown does not trump all else. <laughs> trump. Um, so for listeners who may not be clear, let's just be really clear who and what we're talking about. We're talking about the Bobby Jindals and the Nikki Haley's and the Rod Shaw's and the Seema, uh, what's her face of um, Medicare and Medicaid. We're talking about those people. And I'm not saying it simply because they're Republicans or they serve with the Trump administration. I have a lot of Republican friends who I have great admiration for, who serve the country ably and who do you know good things. But people who actively use their positions of power to A, screw over our own community, B, distance themselves from our community, and C, hurt communities like ours um, uh, and, and communities that are our allies, we have to call them out. And so, you know, I know that there's a lot of folks in our community who think, look, representation in and of itself should be a goal. So who cares if Bobby or Nikki, you know, don't want to acknowledge their Indian names? And who cares if they don't want to associate with the Indian community? No, we should care. Because, because they are getting some of the benefits of being Indian, but none of the responsibility that comes with it. And so, look, everybody should be free to identify as they please. But if you're going to take money from our community, as both Governor Jindal and former Governor, now Ambassador Haley did, then if you're going to take votes from our community, and if you're going to use your Indianness to get on the front page of India abroad and get great media coverage and get great support, then you damn well better deliver for that community. And at the very least, you shouldn't support administrations and policies they're going to hurt us. So I look at somebody like Nikki Haley, who, you know, has a lot of admirable qualities. But what is she doing as an advisor to the president of the United States when it comes to this H-1B issue? Where is she in the conversation to say, you cannot screw over all these hardworking people who have put their lives on hold and are waiting for your immigration system to get fixed? You can't screw them over by by curtailing this program. Um because that's the program that allowed her parents and my parents and your parents to come here. And so I, I have a big problem with them. And I have a big problem with the idea of representation for representation. Like, I don't just want brown people in office. I don't want Ameri- I don't want our government to look like America. I want our government to sound like us and to think like us and to speak like us and to truly reflect the values that we brought here. And, and I don't see that in a lot of uh, this new crop of uh, Indian Americans who are in positions of leadership in the Trump administration. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And actually, I had two other questions. One, who would you like to see win in 2020? Who are you excited about? I am I am excited about, I'm excited about Beto O'Rourke in Texas. I'm excited about Aftab Burewal, who's running for Congress in Ohio, who's half Indian and half uh, Tibetan. I'm excited about Kamala Harris, who is uh, both Black and Indian and is Senator from California. I'm excited about Cory Booker, and I'm excited about Elizabeth Warren. And there's there's lots to be excited about on our side. And any Democrat or progressive who says that we don't have a bench, they're, they're out of their minds. And then... Did you ever meet Obama, like personally? I did. I met him a couple of times. Not not that I think he'd remember my name or anything, but um, usually it was like at holiday parties or I met actually the times that I got to meet him the most were during the campaign when he was running for president. We were actually uh, in a couple of the same cities together and there'd be times where like I'd actually get to have a conversation with the guy. So I remember the very first time uh, I talked to him, I had like this whole speech plan in my head of what I was going to say, like I had like a 10 second spiel and he shook my hand and the only thing I could say was, your hands are so soft. <laughs> to which to which he perfectly responded, I lotion. And <laughs> any awesome. guy who uses lotion as a verb has my vote for anything they want to be. That's amazing. I don't even know what I would have said. He's just so handsome. I was just I was just glad to meet a man who understood the perils of ashy skin. And you know, we, we brown dudes, we don't talk about it, but we we have to have lotion on hand all the time. <laughs> Thank you. 
All right, uh, Barack, we're just going to go into a few fun questions. Um, sure. Who was the coolest person you worked with in politics overall? Name one person. Uh, governor Howard Dean, who was the governor of Vermont and then ran for president and then became chair of the DNC. He's been my mentor and really like a father figure to me. And he, uh, I think, has revolutionized uh, the way we think about politics in this country. Okay. What is the one thing working for the U.S. government that surprised you? How hard it is to book travel. I had no idea that the hardest part of my job would to be a book of life. Everybody else can like go on like a website, go on kayak, go on, you know, e- e- um, whatchamacallit, Expedia, and they can book their plane in their hotel. If you're in the government, it's like a really complicated process. And I swear to God, if, if, I, if I ever go back to government again, like that's the one thing I want to fix. Because I think the way we do travel in the government is really painful. Not what I would have thought yeah, you would have said. Yeah, that's not the answer I was expecting. <laughs> if you had to write a memoir about your time in D.C., what would be the t- title of the, of the book? I have two ideas. One is Memoirs of a Gaysian. <laughs> That's awesome. And the second is an homage to my Texas roots is Cowboys and Indians. Nice. I think you should write one of them, Farag, for sure. And this might be a harder one to answer. I'm not sure if you have a short answer for these, but what was your high during your time in D.C.? What was your low? The high was uh, probably the election of Barack Obama, and the low was the uh, non-election of Hillary Clinton. That, that's a good answer. It sums it up. Sorry, wait, just so you know, um, living here in upstate New York, which is actually Westchester County, right above Manhattan, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I now live, for the second time in my life, I live within a few miles of Hillary Clinton, who I love, by the way. And I've been in love with Hillary since 1991 when I discovered her with headbands and uh, her amazing ability to like uh, explain things to people. And uh, so I actually, when I moved up here, one of the reasons I picked Westchester is because I thought I'd find her in the woods. So Babab and I spend the weekends walking around the woods hoping we'll catch Hillary. Yeah, because didn't that happen to one mother like a couple months yeah, ago? Yeah, people, people have found her. And in fact, the last time we lived in the same zip code or same area code was when I was in D.C. And I remember years ago I was driving, uh, actually I was at the Indian Embassy in Washington, and I was my roommate and I were driving away. And Hillary Clinton was walking along the side of the road. It was late at night, and she was with like four Secret Service agents. And I was supposed to turn left on an intersection, and her Secret Service agent like came and blocked the road so that she could cross. And I rolled down the window, and I said, don't worry. I'm not going to run over Hillary Clinton. My mom would kill me. And uh, she actually turned, and she smiled at me. She thought that was funny. That's awesome. And Okay, and really quick, I got to ask, since we brought up Hillary, and, and we're all – I'm still torn up about it. Was she the wrong candidate? No. What happened? No, we're the wrong country. Um she did not fail us. We failed her. And um, I don't care what people who want to take apart this woman want to say, but you cannot spend 25 years systematically tearing down and denigrating an honorable public servant and then think that she's going to just breeze through an election um, because she was right on the issues. And look, Hillary herself has said, and you should listen to all the interviews and podcasts that she's done because she's done some really good ones where she does a lot of self-reflection. By the way, when is the last time a man, Democrat or Republican, lost the race for the presidency and then, and then did this much public self-reflection and took this much responsibility for their life? Do you remember Mitt Romney doing it? Do you remember John McCain doing it? Do you remember John Kerry doing it? Right. Nope. Bob Dole, anybody? Nope. No. So the fact that Hillary has really taken the time, and some people say, well, why won't you just go away and shut up? I don't want her to go away and shut up. And the 60-some million of us who voted for her, which is more than voted for Trump, we enjoy hearing what she has to say, and we'd like to hear more of what she has to say. We want to hear more. In fact, I I feel like I, I miss her voice. Like, I feel like it's not enough. You know, like whenever you hear from someone like Hillary Clinton or President Obama, it's it's kind of a comforting feeling. When you listen to these people, put aside sort of your assumptions, right? Like put aside all your stereotypes about Nancy Pelosi or George W. Bush or Hillary Clinton and try to listen to the substance of what they're saying and then ask yourself a question. Do I fundamentally agree with this point or do I disagree? And if you really look at through that lens, 
um, I think that you'll start to realize that Hillary Clinton has, over the last quarter century, contributed to a body of thought and leadership in American politics that is unparalleled, and that we as a country are better today because we have had her in our country and had her willing to lead us and willing to serve us. And I think we failed her uh, on a massive scale. And I also continue to believe that um, there's more going to come out about the 2016 election than we know today. I, you know, everybody says, let it go. She lost. I, I don't concede the fact that she lost um, because I, I continue to believe that there were other forces at play in this election. Interesting. Well, that's going to be interesting to know about. And yeah, I'm definitely still heartbroken about it. And I, I asked that uh, question in that way because obviously the media keeps saying that she was the wrong candidate and, and that's just so hard to believe. So so on a lighter note, you're engaged. Yay. Yay. So uh, what's the wedding plans? In progress. Uh, we are in negotiations among the various parental units involved, as well as the two of us and our extended family, because, you know, it's going to, it's a, it's a, it's a desi wedding. What can I tell you? The, the desi wedding industrial complex is large, it is powerful, and it is real. And so even though we keep trying to make it a small, intimate ceremony, uh, there's all these pressures uh, family obligations and others that uh, we have to include people. But look, here's here's my take on it. We are a same-sex couple, and we're getting married in Central Texas, and we're both desi. So to me, that in and of itself is a momentous, sort of groundbreaking, earth-shattering thing for a lot of people. And so the political side of me understands that symbols matter, right? And just like Obama lighting the via in the White House, it's not substantive, but it does matter. It creates it creates a sense of inclusion. I recognize that through our wedding, it's not just about the two of us because it's it's taken on a bigger life. It's about the kid who the thirteen year old kid who's struggling to with their identity, whose mom and dad are going to receive an invitation a year from now, inviting them to this wedding. And in that invitation, he's going to find a little bit of hope. So I'm okay with the bigness of it all as long as it's bigness with a purpose and and a positive vibe, right? That's that's all you care about. And of course, we want to have. It should only be positive, right? There shouldn't be having no negativity. Man, Indian weddings are just insane. I went through, I, I guess, you know what? If you want any advice, just it will, stress will never help. And it's going to end up being beautiful no matter what you guys do. So we made a pact, the two of us, that it's all only love and smiles. And if it ever stops being love and smiles, then we're going to stop doing it. Because this is ultimately a day to consecrate the love between two people, two families, and two communities. And if it's not that, then then there's no reason to do it. And and final question, Brog, can I perform a Ross uh, dance at your wedding? <laughs> <laughs> and so the negotiations begin. I'm just saying, you know, I was pretty good. So if you can still twirl a dan- dandia, I'm down. Are you still going to dress like the boy? Whatever you want, my or friend. Have you, or have you finally graduated to being the girl? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again to Parag Mehta for giving us so much of his time today. Yeah, he really does have the inside scoop. And I learned a lot today. That was really fun and educational. And I'm glad I'll be performing at his wedding. (laughs) Yeah, right. And if you want to follow Parag, you can look him up on Instagram, Parag V. Mehta. Uh, Also on Facebook, the same, Parag V. Mehta. P-A-R-A-G-V and then Mehta is M-E-H-T-A. Very cool. And you guys always know where you can find us online. Uh, social media handles at Amitukered Out. That's A M I T U C K E R E D O U T. Or email us at uh, AmitukeredOut at gmail.com. And I think that's it. We will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. This is Amitukered Out. <laughs> <laughs>